Hello, folks. It's Andy, the analytical preacher. I think everyone would agree for a Christian, faith is one of the foundations of our religion. It's faith is one of the foundations of our Christian life. We talk about it in so many different ways. We see it in so many places in the Bible. One of the most famous places we see it is in Ephesians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul writes that we are saved by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. So faith being this foundational element, we really need to understand what it means because a true understanding of faith will unlock so many answers for us in our Christian journey. And conversely, a misunderstanding of faith is actually the cause of not only some misdirection in life, but probably some disillusionment as well. So what I want to do in this podcast is talk about faith. What is faith, and how does it relate to our Christian walk, to our Christian life? And as importantly, there's a phrase that I heard ever since COVID pandemic that I've heard more and more often used, uh, to be honest, in sort of a more and more bitter tone. And, And sometimes it's a bumper sticker or it's some little meme on a social media that just says faith over fear. Sometimes it's someone speaking and they're saying, We should have, or usually it's you should have faith over fear. You should exhibit or exercise faith over fear in what you're doing and in the way you're walking. As that phrase has become more common in the Christian world, I've had a great number of people that have said to me, can you explain to me what that phrase means, faith over fear. And can you show me the context of where and how it is taught in the Bible? And I would say for the average Christian, that is an absolutely excellent way to approach any religious, any Christian, any biblical topic. When you don't understand something, find a minister, Bible college professor, find a book that can explain to you how it's used in the Bible, the context in which it's taught and used in the Bible. And so what we're going to do is look at faith, and then we're going to go to some scriptures and see if we can sort of figure out how this, what this faith over fear might mean, how it might apply to us. With almost every important word in the Bible, the way that you define it is not to go to the dictionary and look up the dictionary definition of the word. Almost every important word in Scripture, faith included, of course, is defined by Scripture itself. And so what we want to do is look at different Scriptures that deal with faith. And we really only need to look at two main Scriptures in the New Testament to get a really solid biblical definition of faith. So let's first put our definition of faith scripturally based down, and then we'll go on to our little faith over fear conundrum that has so many folks asking questions. The two scriptures, number one, Romans chapter four, verses 20 to 22. Here's the setup for the scripture. The apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans to Christians living in, no surprise, Rome. In this part of the scripture, he's speaking about a man named Abraham. Abraham is considered the father of the Hebrew people. And God told Abraham, I will make a special nation from you. Ultimately, from you, all the nations of the world, all the families of the world 
will be blessed. Of course, we now know that that blessing came because Jesus Christ was a descendant of Abraham. And in talking about Abraham, now Abraham had lived thousands of years before Paul wrote to the Romans, and he wrote to the Romans a couple thousand years from where we sit today. So years and years and years in the past, 4,000 some odd years, at least in the past, Paul is writing about this gentleman, Abraham. We don't need to know his complete story. We're just going to pick it up in Romans 4, verse 20, and it says this. No unbelief made him, Abraham, no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith. There's our word. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was, quote unquote, counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was unwavering. He believed, fully convinced, it said, that God was able to do what he had promised Abraham that he would do. Solid beginning to our definition of faith. And here's what we need to wrap that definition and make it complete. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the faith chapter or the hall of faith or the hall of fame of the heroes of the faith, etc. Hebrews 11.1 starts off this way. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Boy, that gives us a really powerful but simple definition of faith. The most accurate, the best straightforward definition of biblical faith is this. You believe with an unwavering belief that God can and that God will fulfill his promises. You don't lose your hope in those promises, even when you can see no evidence right now that those promises are being fulfilled. That's what you get from Romans 4 and Hebrews 11. It's the assurance of things hoped for. What did Abraham hope for? Abraham hoped for the promises that God had told him, and he believed that God was able to deliver those promises. Back to Hebrews 11. It's even the conviction of things not seen. Things that were promised to Abraham didn't actually happen for thousands of years, but they did happen exactly as God promised that they would. And Abraham believed it. He was fully convinced of it. He had faith in God, which in some sense is the same thing as saying he had faith in the promises of God, even when he couldn't understand how God was going to fulfill them when God was going to fulfill them and couldn't see any evidence that God was currently at work fulfilling them. That is biblical faith. Now, I have spoken in other podcasts. God is not calling us to what we would say is a blind faith. God's not calling us to have a faith that defies logic or that defies any and all available evidence. In fact, it's really just the opposite. God is calling us to a rational faith. I'm not going to recount all that argument now, but you can go back and listen to podcasts like, how do we know the Bible is true and the Bible requires Christians to be rational people to really get an understanding. What we have is a very rational faith. We have a faith based on the Bible. We have a faith based on God's track record. Why would I believe that God can and will fulfill his promises? Well, one reason is because God has a perfect track record of 
fulfilling his promises in the past. So if that is biblical faith, if biblical faith is believing that God can and will fulfill his promises, even if I don't understand how or when, don't see any evidence of it, but I just know that God has proven the Bible to be true, and I understand why that is, and I understand what those promises are, and I see God's track record, so I'm in. I'm going to be unwavering in my faith. The question then immediately and obviously becomes, then what are the promises that God has made us? In what, as a Christian, should I have unwavering hope and faith? And really, it's it's a general category of things. I'll just list off almost bullet point style here. It's really a category of things. We believe that Jesus, by faith, is the Son of God and God the Son. God has promised us that not only is Jesus my Son, but that He paid for your sins on the cross. You can't fix your problem with me. And I'm not asking you to. I'm asking you to accept the fix that Jesus, my son, put in place for you. God promises, ultimately, I'm going to right every wrong. I'm going to defeat every enemy. I'm going to wipe every tear from every eye. God says, I know the world looks insane right now. And it looks more often than not like the meanest person wins, the most powerful person wins. But I'm promising you, I'm going to write that. I'm going to fix that. God promises us that he rewards those who have turned to him. Jesus promises us that he has overcome the world. Jesus promises us, I am returning. You don't know when. No one knows the hour or the day, Jesus says in Matthew 24. But I absolutely promise you, I am returning. And when I return, that's when I not only defeat my enemies, but I gather my people to me. And God has promised us that he is going to not only defeat enemies and wipe every tear, but God says, I am going to create a new heaven and a new earth in which only righteousness dwells, in which all the cursed things, he says in Revelation, are gone. They're a distant past memory. In a nutshell, those are the types of things that God has promised us. And those are the things in which Christians should have an unwavering faith. Of course, it can be hard sometimes to have that unwavering faith in promises like that. Because as I said, the world is nuts. And it seems like the meanest person wins or the most powerful person wins or the most conniving person wins. And it can be difficult sometimes to really think God knew all this was going to play out this way, and yet still everything is under his control. And Jesus is going to fulfill all those promises about righting wrongs and wiping tears and collecting his own and recreating heaven and earth. So it can be difficult at times, which is why it's important to stay grounded in the scripture and important to fellowship and study and worship with other Christians to keep our faith strong. But just as important as it is to maintain a strong, true faith, We also want to be careful and not have any false faith. And we want to be careful to not foster any self-serving faith in our Christian lives. So let me talk a little bit about these two, false faith and self-serving faith, as a contrast to the true biblical faith. One quick example of a false faith would be uh, what is now termed as the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel, in some sense, says, If your faith is strong enough, if your prayers are righteous enough or whatever it is, the Lord will bless you materially. God wants you to live to be 500 years old. God wants you to drive a Mercedes and park it in a a four-car garage in a three-story house. 
and then go jump in your heated pool, Olympic-sized pool in the back. That's what God wants. If you don't have those things, it's because your faith isn't strong enough. You're not giving enough money to the preacher. You're not praying in the right way or whatever. The Bible says no such thing. God made, listen to me, God made no such promise in the scriptures ever, period. Nothing even close. In fact, scripture says just the opposite. Scripture does not say, become a Christian, have a strong faith, pray the right prayers. You'll get your house, you'll get your Mercedes, you'll get your 401k. Scripture says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Scripture says, in this life, you will have trouble. Scripture says, count it all blessing, my brother and sisters, when you're persecuted for your faith. That's what scripture actually says. And to be honest, not only does it create a false faith, oh man, I got this real hope that now because I give this much and I have this kind of faith and I pray this way, that now all these material and physical blessings are going to pour on me. And I believe that God's going to fulfill those promises. It's a false faith because God never made those promises to you. And when difficulties in life come, it shatters your faith. I didn't think God was going to treat me that way. I thought I was doing everything right. He didn't fulfill his end of the bargain. He didn't give me those promises. God's saying, because I never made those promises. To be blunt and honest, I think the prosperity gospel in some sense is a slap in the face to every Christian that's been persecuted down through time, for every Christian that lost their life, for every Christian who lost their job and the society and the culture where they were, where they said, do not hire those Christians. And businesses are told by the government or by the predominant, the dominant religion in the area, you are not allowed to hire Christians and people have to give up their jobs. And in many cases, they have to give up their families in order to follow their faith. I think the prosperity gospel in some sense is a slap in the face to every Christian today who's sitting in a prison cell because of their faith. They're not sitting in a prison cell because their faith isn't strong enough and because God's not fulfilling his promises to bring prosperity to his believers. No, they're sitting in a prison cell today in dozens of countries around the world for their faith because in this life we will have trouble and we will be persecuted for his name's sake. That's a false faith. We say, wow, that'd be cool if God really wanted to bless me in that way. I'm going to try to believe that until it happens and see if it's if it's true. It's not true, and I would call that a false faith. Very similar to that is this self-serving faith. And that's where I think faith over fear sometimes comes in. I think the phenomenon gets caught up there. So let me look at one more set of scriptures here, and then we'll talk about self-serving faith, and we'll talk about close out looking at faith over fear. Here's the scripture. Jesus had, he was about 30 some odd years old and he was ready to begin his earthly ministry. He goes and he is baptized by John the Baptist. You can see this in the early part of the gospels, first chapters of Mark or the third, fourth chapters of Luke and so forth. Jesus is going to be baptized by John the Baptist. And then he goes out into what is called either the wilderness or the desert. And part of what Jesus is doing there is reconnecting fully, completely with God to say, as I begin my earthly ministry, what's the method I'm going to use? I'm psyching myself up for the method I'm going to use because the method ultimately is going to bring some heartache to me. It's going to bring some suffering to me. And so I'm coming out here 
to be with God, fully empowered by the Holy Spirit to think about my ministry and to prepare myself for the difficulties of my ministry. While Christ is doing that, it says that Satan came and tempted him. There were three temptations that Satan uses. I'm just going to look at the one that's relevant to us. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 4, verse 9, and then we're going to look at Jesus' response in verse 12. It says, And he took him, meaning, and Satan took Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, so a couple hundred feet up in the air. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Verse 12. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In saying that, Jesus is quoting part of the law of Moses, which had been written about 1400 years earlier. Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. This is how I would sort of restate that. Satan is going, so you're out here preparing for this work, for this earthly ministry, which is going to include you having to work hard. It's going to include you being rejected. It's going to include you suffering to the point of death. Rather, instead of doing that, Jesus, why don't you do something that's a little more self-serving? Instead of becoming the suffering servant, rejected and executed, Why don't you make yourself famous? Come up here on the high point of the temple. And Satan's probably thinking, I'll gather thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people around. And they'll watch you and you'll jump. Come on, dude. You know you're the son of God. If you jump, God's not going to let you hit the ground and die. God's going to rescue you. Satan misquotes a psalm in this process trying to get Jesus to think that the Bible tells him maybe he's supposed to do it this way. Jesus answers him with scripture and says, Yeah, I understand that I'm about to be rejected and I'm about to suffer. But what you're asking me to do, quoting that, misquoting that psalm to me, Satan, that's not faith. That's putting God to the test. And putting God to the test is forbidden. Putting God to the test has been forbidden for almost 1,500 years now. I have faith in the promises of God. But I won't put God to the test in some self-serving way. All right. Take those verses. Now let's come back to, say, a COVID thing of faith over fear. And what does that mean? Some folks, as with anything else, so we, we can we can start with swimming in the ocean or riding a roller coaster as opposed to COVID. And you come up at the exact same endpoint. I happen to like swimming in the ocean. I'm not a very good swimmer. I can't surf at all because I don't have the balance. But I enjoy swimming, put that in quotes, frolicking, dipping my head in the ocean. I I rather enjoy that. And I'll go out to the sandbars and then swim back to the beach and so forth. A lot of folks I know, including folks in my own family, they're not happy about the ocean. Maybe you'd even say they're honestly a little bit afraid of the ocean. Maybe they don't swim well enough or they've seen too many Jaws movies or whatever it is. So I could say to them, because I don't see a risk in playing in the water and they're a little more timid about it. I could say, oh, you should have faith. Why are you so fearful? You don't think God's going to protect you. You should have faith over fear. And I'm doing it in a very self-serving way. It's just in a worldly sense, I happen to not see the same risk there that they do. Maybe I'm right. Maybe they're right. It doesn't really matter. They don't see the same, I don't see the same risk that they do. And I turn it into something faith-based when it's really not for self-serving reasons. Don't you think God will protect you? Their answer should be, 
There's no scripture in the entire Bible that says that if I'm goofy enough to go deep out in the ocean, even though I'm a very bad swimmer, that God's going to protect me from drowning. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. Same thing. Let's say some young kid, hey, Mr. Andy, let's go ride these roller coasters. And I'm like, no, I'm too old to ride roller coasters anymore. It makes my stomach very queasy. So my roller coaster days were over sometime in my late 30s, but I appreciate the offer. They could say to me, oh, don't you have faith over fear? Why are you so afraid of a roller coaster? I thought you were this big Christian minister. And again, I would have to say to them, there's nothing in the Bible where God promises me if you ride roller coasters just relentlessly all day long at the local theme park, God promises you won't throw your lunch up on your boots. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. So that is not faith over fear. That is a young person enjoys riding roller coasters and the old man doesn't. And that, unfortunately, I think is where COVID got for a lot of us. Some folks just weren't concerned about COVID. It's just a flu-like illness. You've had it before. You have a sore throat and a fever for a couple of days. You go on with your life. We don't need to do this or this or that. Other people just were more naturally concerned about the disease, or maybe they were immunocompromised, or maybe they had some factor that would make it difficult, like they severe kidney disease or diabetes, etc. These individuals were much more cautious about COVID. And I'm afraid sometimes their Christian brothers and sisters would say to them, you need to have faith over fear. But faith in what? The Bible doesn't say if you have diabetes and you go walking in the COVID ward of a hospital, God promises you, you won't catch COVID. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, I think the Bible would argue if you have severe diabetes and we know what COVID is like, especially that Delta variant back in the day. It's just common sense you wouldn't go walking in the COVID ward of a hospital. That's basically like suicide. And if you think you're going to strut through the COVID ward without a mask on, breathing as deeply as you can just to prove a point, that's not relying on a promise of God. If anything, Deuteronomy 6.16 style, I think that would be putting God to a test. I'm going to see. If God will make me sick, I'm going to force God, try to force God to not allow me to get sick so I can prove my faith. Again, for the things where God has not made us an explicit promise, we do not have an explicit faith. And so I think we have to be really careful. There are times when we can say we should have faith over fear. I don't think there's any doubt. When someone begins to say, I'm very depressed because I realized that the world is never going to get better. I would say, no, no, no. Have faith over your fear that mankind has so destroyed the world that we should all be depressed and withdraw from civilization because things are horrible and getting worse. No, no, no. Have faith over your fear about that because God has promised us that he's going to recreate the world, that he's going to right every wrong, that he's going to dry every tear. If the government were to just come in and say, you cannot speak of Jesus ever again. And I would say, we have to continue to speak of Jesus. We have to continue, as the Bible says, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have to do that. Yeah, but you're going to get in trouble. You're going to lose your job. You're going to go to prison. Maybe you're going to be executed for that. I would say, but we have to have faith over fear because God says, if you stand before men and if you are persecuted, blessed are you. Blessed are the persecuted. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. This is going to end out fantastic for you. You're going to be children of God. You're going to be in the kingdom of God. I believe that promise. So if the government tries to shut down my faith, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to have faith over fear. But if you say, why don't we go hang gliding here? Or why don't we go deep sea diving here? Or why don't we go do this? with these kind of patients there, or why don't we do this, even though we might really run the risk of catching that disease, and then not only catching it, but passing it on to somebody else who could then catch it, and maybe even be even sicker than us. In those situations, I think it is very self-serving to say, have faith over fear, because God has not promised us anything in that regard. And I think as Christians, we have to be very careful that we don't fall for a false faith, that when it doesn't come true, when the promises that we hope God made, but that he really didn't, when those promises don't materialize, we become disillusioned and we begin to lose our faith. And I think Christians have to be exceedingly careful about a self-serving faith. You don't need in some way to challenge anyone else who sees risk in the world different than you do. We don't need to challenge them that they need to have more faith over fear like we do, because the next day someone else is going to see risk not see risk where you do, and the roles could be reversed. So that's our best definition of faith, and hopefully that helps to explain the rise of the phrase faith over fear and maybe help put it a little bit in a better perspective. This is Andy. Thanks for listening.